Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello and welcome to Half Pints, the bonus content of the Irish Passport podcast we make especially to thank our Patreon supporters. And thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon as ever. We're checking in. First of all, let's talk about what happened, the drama overnight. The Democratic Unionist Party has lost its new leader after only 20 days. So Edwin Poots had uh, kind of been behind this heave against Arlene Foster, who'd been the leader for a good while, and succeeded in that heave, was made leader only to face a rebellion himself from his own party. Okay, right. So so let's break that down. Uh, so Eileen Foster was in place as the DUP leader for ages. She was there for ages. And she had, uh, I mean, she, like a, a lot of people would see her as ultra conservative, even reactionary. But relatively to a lot of the uh, kind of policies that you see in the DUP, she was also seen as kind of moderate relative she was a moderate, uh, to, yeah. to some of those members. So when she was ousted uh, just a little while ago and replaced by Edwin Poots, this was a big step change because Ed- Edwin Poots is part of a faction within the DUP that is very, very heavily uh, evangelist. It was very widely publicised, for instance, that he he believes that the world is 6,000 years old. He um, is a biblical literist, things like that. A lot of people surmised that A, Edwin Poots would save the DUP by bringing it back to its more hardline roots, and B, they thought that maybe he would be the downfall of the DUP because people have moved on over the, over the years and that they weren't going to stand uh, for these hardline conservative views anymore. But Naomi, I believe that Edwin Poots was kind of instrumental in the first place to Arlene Foster's downfall. Yeah, the heave that came against Arlene Foster seems to be because she abstained rather than voted against a motion which was about banning conversion therapy in Northern Ireland. So a kind of, you know, a, so, a social um, social rights issue. This is gay, gay conversion therapy. Gay conversion therapy, exactly. So there was that. And then there was the combination of the sort of fallout of Brexit, where suddenly you have this, um, you know, the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, supported Brexit, and now all of these things that are bad for them are happening. So you've got, you know, increased checks between Britain and Northern Ireland. Remember, there always were some checks, but now there's like more than there were before. And there's this row because this is seen as like threatening to, you know, the the feeling that Northern Ireland have people in Northern Ireland have about how much they are, you know part of the central sort of British Union. They don't want to feel, unions don't want to feel like they're different, at least some of them. So there's these checks threaten that. And in the context of this, you know, Arlene Foster was overthrown and it was seen as a sort of like a heave to the right or, you know, back to like the fundamentals of of the DUP. Uh, But now for Poots himself to be tossed again. And the reason why Poots has gone is because he supported a a power-sharing deal with Sinn Féin. We should probably just take a step back and say that, like, the Northern Ireland Assembly, after the Good Friday Agreement, it relies on the two parties 
ruling in power and one of them is the first minister and the other one is deputy basically representatives of the two communities have to be involved in this power sharing agreement and it's always contentious there was an agreement a couple of years ago that there would be legislation for the Irish language which doesn't have official status in Northern Ireland unlike say Welsh in Wales and there's been a big movement for that not to be the case because you know it's people's language and it should be right that they should be able to for example use it in court or something like that to defend themselves um it's just like it's about you know giving people sort of equal recognition and respect and this had been agreed but it never brought been brought into legislation and Sinn Féin had it as you know aligned that they they wanted this Irish Language Act to pass. A compromise was reached wherein that the DUP wouldn't have to support this, but it would actually be legislated for directly by Westminster if um, if Stormont hadn't brought it in by, I think it was September or October or something like that. And it wasn't even a full Irish Language Act. It was it was something, you know, like short of that. Uh, it was an, an amendment to an existing legislation rather than a standalone act. Um, so it was, it was a compromise. Anyway, Edwin Poots uh, agreed this and went off and proposed it in Stormont without the support of his own party who actually voted mm. against it as an unacceptable concession to Sinn Féin. So suddenly he's facing this massive rebellion from his party and he had to resign. Right. OK, so like there's, there's a number of things that just make the DUP look really bad to their own supporters, I suppose, uh, not to talk uh, of the wider uh, community uh, of voters in this scenario. So, for, I mean, the ousting of Eileen Foster was seen, I get the feeling anyway, it was seen as kind of very crass, a little bit cruel, a little bit underhanded. Then this kind of lurch to the right made a, a lot of people, I feel, a little bit wary, a little bit unsettled. But then we have Edwin Poots going in for, I think it was 21 days. He only lasted 21 days. Um, 20 and days, in this, yeah. 20. 20 days. And in this time, he actually, he wasn't going to take the position of first minister himself. He was, he had nominated another member of the party, Paul Given, to be first minister. And Edwin Poots would carry on uh, in the background. That, I, I understand, was also a little bit of a bone of contention uh, with his party members. So when you have all this kind of struggle and um, confusion about leadership and who's doing what and where where is even the party going, for this for this latest fallout to be centred on the Irish Language Act looks particularly bad, I feel, even to the most hardline unionists. Because this Irish Language Act stuff has been going on for ages, like, and it's really not that important, like, in the relative world that we're living in right now with COVID and Brexit, like... This isn't going to hurt anyone. It's to, like just allow some people to use Irish in a in a in a official capacity, and the... it's a it's a c- complete sectarian dog whistle. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, like it, the only real justification for resisting it is a kind of hatred of Irish culture, and you know even like very hardline unionists would be turned off by that. You know, like like lots of DUP voters, you know, are not cruel people. You know, like they're they're not hateful people, and this is kind of hateful policy making, and it's it's hateful policy making that is slowing down efficient government. You know, so they're coming off really badly, I think, to their own supporters by settling on something so. Petty, um, you know, <laughs> to, and for that to be their downfall, it's not a good look, right? It's they basically are facing this really difficult dilemma of a division that they have between hardliners but the need to compete for more moderate voters. So the mm. DUP vote share is very much threatened by more moderate parties, particularly the likes of Alliance. Other unionist parties are also going after more moderate voters. 
um, with, uh, you know, perhaps appeal to, to be like the more socially progressive, like brand of unionism, because, you know, clearly the more hardline is uh, alienating to that more middle ground voter, particularly younger voters who perhaps doesn't have their sort of like sectarian or ethnic affiliation as the most strongest driving force in their voting decisions. Um, so then you have uh, you have this risk for the DUP in sort of doubling down and becoming and doubling down on, you know, on, on the hardline side of the party, that it will further lose votes away to moderate voters. But then again, you also have them under very, very strong pressure from hardliners um, and from, you know, the likes of loyalist paramilitaries who we know met with senior party leadership at different times um, over the protocol issue um, and over it's the protocol is just sort of like one. This is the Northern Ireland's post-Brexit arrangements. It's just like one element in a general feeling about loss of status in Northern Ireland to the other camp, to the others, to the like, whatever you want to call them, nationalist or Irish identifying or Catholic. Um, and this is th- this sort of sense of grievance, which is driving this uh, this co- these calls from hardline quarters to give no further quarter, to put the foot down, you know, to, to give nothing else. And that is very much how uh, Poots's agreement to make this deal on ruling and to allow for legislation for the Irish language is being described. If you look at the rhetoric from the DUP, they say he paid, your, from his opponents, he paid the Sinn Féin's ransom, is what they're talking mm. about, which is really loaded language, painting Sinn Féin as, you know, as violent actors, um, you know, referring back to the conflict, but also talking about this Irish language legislation as a concession to the other side. And that's why it's opposed, because it's something that the others want. <laughs> Basically. Right. Yeah. And I, it's something that the DUP thrives on as well. Right. For its politics, it needs this kind of um, uh, this confrontation with the other all the time to to essentially justify being there in the first place. And this is something that uh, Connor and Hannah, two young, very, very intelligent, uh, eloquent people that we spoke to on a previous half pint who live in Belfast, they brought this up a very interesting kind of point about the cannibalism that we're seeing in the DUP, partially stemming from the fact that they can't really blame the protocol on nationalists or on other unionists um, because most people didn't want Brexit at all in the first Mm. place. So the only people they can really blame for any consequences of Brexit are either themselves or the Westminster government. You know, we've seen a lot of very gymnastic um, attempts to try and blame the EU. But like, not only is that that not really flying, it's just a little, it's just so tortuous to try and get to that as, as being the reason why all this is going wrong. So, you know, like all this anger that should be kind of being directed or that traditionally would be directed at the others, the ones on the other side is kind of swirling around now amongst themselves and it seems to be like disintegrating the entire party. It, it's really interesting. I listened recently to an interview with Susan McKay, who's the author of a couple of books about Protestants in Northern Ireland. She has a new one out lately and she was giving an interview on a podcast and she talked about the tendency among the Protestant community in Northern Ireland to hunt the Lundy. And what this means is basically Robert Lundy was a military officer and he was governor of Derry back way back when during the siege of Derry during the time of like you know the, the royalist wars the catholic forces were at the gates of Derry and he didn't think that the the city could withstand a siege so he proposed a sort of compromise and wanted to open the gates or leave the gates open 
and the apprentice boys um, rebelled, basically mutinied or whatever, and closed the gates. And this is sort of it's remembered mm. up until the present day. You have parades in honor of the apprentice boys who are sort of you know remembered for their loyalty and not giving up, even though Lundy had uh, been prepared for a compromise. And effigies of Lundy are burned, and the word Lundy means like someone who's going to compromise, someone who's going to sell you out, mm. someone who's not loyal enough. And so this this tendency of turning on each other and trying to find the one who's 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 going to sell out, basically, Susan McKay describes it as this very, very toxic sort of dynamic where people get trapped. They're they're unable to compromise. They're unable to to move, you know, to express something for fear that it would be deemed like too soft on this constitutional question. And like mm. you know, if if Poots is a Lundy now, like who, like who, who isn't, like who, who can right. they possibly find? You know what I mean? Um, and it's so interesting as well to see like the post-rule uh, uh, transformation of Arlene Foster. Like Arlene Foster was, you know, always ca- like, you know, never giving any quarter, like keeping a hard line, you know, uncompromising as a leader, and since. Since being kicked out, she's suddenly transformed. She sings Frank Sinatra spontaneously <laughs> in press conferences. You know, she dances. She's full of joy. That's life. <laughs> <laughs> That's what all the people say. Yeah. <laughs> You're riding high in April. Shut down in May. <laughs> she gives, like, jokey tweets about how she's having a lovely lunch in the middle of the DUP sort of um, cannibalism <laughs> that's going on. Like, you know, she's, she's come across as this sort of likable, humorous character. And it's like, where was that Arlene for all of those years? Where was that person? The position that she was in requires her to be, to assume that hardline position. I suppose when you put it in in the context of her, like, just not supporting anti-gay, like, viciously anti-gay legislation, like, in just yeah. the very fact that she would abstain from that. She didn't stand up for gay rights or anything. Like, she, right. she certainly didn't say that, you know, she, she wanted to protect gay rights in any way whatsoever. She just she, abstained. That was She refused to, to punch down, basically. Like, to yeah, she, punch. she punched yeah. sideways and yeah, watched, <laughs> stood, was happy to watch by. other yeah. people punching down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, just by, by not joining in actively with the punching down, and cheering along from the sidelines, um, she was she suffered this traumatic uh, revolt. So I suppose she must have been afraid of that at every moment in her career. But I want to move on to so the DUP, unless they have some kind of miraculous recovery from all this, they're probably going to lose votes. And they can lose votes. They they probably won't lose votes to nationalists. Um, I saw a kind of hilarious um, take by some English journalists who were who were presuming that these votes would go to Sinn Fein, but of course that that's not <laughs> going to happen. Um, so the votes. What um, you kicked out Poots? Okay, fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go and vote for Sinn Fein. Mary Lou, then I suppose. Um, <laughs> so so the votes are probably going to go to um, a maybe the UUP. Uh, which is a more moderate and more traditional unionist party, um, or the TUV, which is an even more hardline uh, unionist party, or a lot of them might go to Alliance. Would I be right in understanding mm-hmm. that? Yeah, um, that's the constant fear that Alliance will, which doesn't identify as being on either side and is sort of agnostic on the whole question about the constitutional status of Northern Ireland, just says, you know, we've got other problems to focus on. So like, let's fix the roads first. You know, that's kind of alliance. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're very pro-EU. 
you know, they're very anti-Brexit. That's also one of their sort of identities. Um, they'd be, you know, kind of similar to the Liberal Democrats in a way in that in, in that sense. Anyway, the, so there's the big risk that voters could go there. But then the interesting thing is, you know, people are worried about this level of instability that this mm. represents because clearly you do have a certain level of unhappiness about the protocol how profound it is is sort of debated like there were riots you know as we know recently uh, that were supposedly about this protocol though there were other underlying issues like unhappiness about policing and so on um, that were stirred up you know how much energy those riots really had is sort of is debated. However, we are heading into the, the peak of the marching season. It is very sensitive. There ha this has been a sort of deeply disastrous couple of years for unionism. There are very um, uh, deprived, underprivileged pockets of um, you know unionist and loyalist communities in Northern Ireland where there are young people with little to lose. So people mm -hmm. are nervous about what happens when those people don't have a voice? If there is no political outlet for their views, then where does that go? Where does that energy go? This sort of spectacle of implosion at the top is not necessarily a positive thing in terms of giving people a, a political outlet. Right, yeah. And something that you mentioned to me in the, in the lead up to all this is uh, there's a kind of question about what would happen if, for instance, the Alliance Party, which, like you said, is not aligned with either nationalism or unionism officially, uh, were to become the second biggest party in Northern mm -hmm. Ireland. So if we ended up in a, in a scenario where instead of Sinn Féin and the DUP, we had Sinn Féin and Alliance. So what you mentioned is that there's, there isn't really a provision in the Good Friday Agreement about what to do in that scenario. Could you, could you explain what you meant by that? No one knows what would happen in that case. So there's a lot of speculation that in the next election in Northern Ireland, whenever that may happen, Sinn Féin will emerge as the biggest party for the first time and the DUP will no longer be the biggest party, which would mean that there would be a Sinn Féin first minister if the parish structures could actually be agreed on and set up. Um, so everyone's been anticipating this uh, for a long time. It would be a very symbolic moment. It would probably come at the same time as a census results or in, in, in short succession with census results that are expected to perhaps show a Catholic, uh, that, that there is no longer a Protestant or unionist identifying majority, that there's actually more Catholics or nationalists at this point, which, you know, all of this is very symbolic. And then Sinn Féin emerging as the biggest party, it, it, it would it would sort of be worrisome to unionists who fear that lack of status and supremacy that they used to enjoy. Then if we had a really disastrous, from the DUP's perspective, calamitous, profound collapse in support for that party in the wake of their support for Brexit and the protocol that's come after, or perhaps a deep splintering of the vote to different parties like the ones you mentioned, UUP and TUV and so on, and alliance really sweeping up, because we do see that there is a quite a solid electoral potential for the for, for alliance with this growing middle group. If Alliance emerged as the second biggest party, we actually don't know what would happen. There isn't actually a precedent. The sort of power sharing structures were set up on the assumption that you've got two communities, two sides, and they both have to be represented. And this has actually been criticised by the likes of Alliance and others because, you know, in a way, it solidifies or makes concrete division and it, it fossilizes in a way these two power structures. It, it secures them in place. 
you could argue it's not as democratic uh, as, as it could be. Mm. We don't know what would happen, essentially. It's kind of a mystery. It is untrodden territory, but it's extremely interesting as a possibility. One, one thing I'd like to know more about is the position of the SDLP in the last year or two. They seem to have kind of risen in profile in the wake of Brexit. You're kind of filling a gap for a more sensible, a more kind of level-headed, more traditional party that people, you know, people are looking for stability and the SDLP relatively seem to look, you know, just like this this quite stable force. I bring this up because I was speaking to a, a friend of mine who grew up in the unionist community in Northern Ireland and she would still be, you know, very much a confirmed unionist, you know, I, I would identify as British and very happy with that. Uh, but she mentioned that she, w- she, she wouldn't be pushed about voting for Alliance, but that she would be very happy to vote for the SDLP, which is, of oh. course, <laughs> a, a nationalist party, but it's a it's a moderate nationalist party, so very different to Sinn Féin uh, in lots of ways, which I found very interesting. And like, even though I suppose the SDLP is a nationalist party, and if, if let's say, the SDLP became the second party, you know, or, the, I don't know, the first, that might still kind of uh, keep up this power-sharing template... Mm-hmm. There is this desire from moderates to move to a more moderate place. So so that's first, uh, the SDLP in its position. And secondly, how like the Good Friday Agreement maybe just isn't really built to accommodate what seems to be a very just natural progression um, of a post-conflict society towards a secular, um, compromising, more moderate, democratic population. Yeah, it, it describes or it assumes deep binary political polarisation that doesn't necessarily describe a society 20 years on where you've got, you know, young people born since the conflict who don't primarily identify in terms of their sectarian affiliation. And you've got like various shades of political parties, whether that's the Greens or, you know, whoever. Um, And what you describe is so interesting about that voter who is, I guess, a DUP or UUP voter swinging SDLP, which is really fascinating There's a couple of things that could be behind that. If that is a broader trend, I wouldn't say it's a significant trend, just as a guess. But one thing is that the SDLP have a potential to distinguish themselves as more socially conservative. Some of their voters, they'd be a little bit like Fianna Fáil Mm. in that some of their older voters would hold more of those sort of like Catholic values in terms of, you know, not being that keen on abortion and things like that. So they have a certain conservative base, which could perhaps have a cross appeal to some more conservative unionist voters. Um, They're also not like they're not as, I suppose, radical on the constitutional question as Sinn Féin. A lot of people are very fed up with both Sinn Féin and the DUP for just Mm -hmm. not ever letting this question rest, you know, making it the main topic of conversation at all times. People get fed up with hearing about it. And with Sinn Féin, I know that some people, although they do support the idea of a united Ireland, don't think that it's always the best strategy to continually call for a referendum all the time, which Sinn Féin, to be fair to them, they kind of do. They want one as soon as possible. And, you know, that's what they want. But not Every voter wants to hear that at every opportunity. They sometimes, there are other issues that people want to be given greater priority, or they might just think that there's, you know, strategic moments to call for a vote like that. Mm, yeah, I suppose no no more than Arlene Foster in the DUP. There must be so much pressure uh, behind Sinn Féin all, to keep that up all the time. If Mary Lou kind of stopped talking about the constitutional question for a year, you know, maybe she would be ousted for for a more for a more typical uh, Sinn, Sinn Féin person or uh, Michelle. Wild times. Listen, I think that's all we have time for in this half point. 
But listeners, if you'd like to hear more of these bonus episodes, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport, where we have a whole archive of them. And we will soon be publishing another one on another timely topic, which is about why the US president, Joe Biden, couldn't seem to stop trolling Britain on his recent trip to Europe, including by quoting from a poem about the Easter Rising. My friends would uh, uh, kid me... uh uh, in the United States Senate, the years I served there, for always quoting Irish poets. I think I quoted Irish poets because I'm Irish. That's not the reason. I quote them because they're the best poets in the world. That's why I quote them. So, uh, once again, a huge thank you to our patrons who make these uh, Half Pint episodes possible. And thank you so much for listening. If you like the episode, do share it with your friends and family. Slan for now. Slan from me. Slán from me.